Welcome. Please let me have your attention. And please join me in welcoming your 56th annual meeting Christian Fellowship Breakfast Chairman, G-Man Gerard Hempstead. Wow, look at this crowd. Are you kidding me? This whole thing started with 12 people 56 years ago, and we're going to have over 2,000 people in the house today. So give yourselves a round of applause for that. And how about Tina Jenkins Crawley and the Christian Fellowship Band? Didn't they do a great job so far? As Dwan said, my name is Gerard Hempstead, and I have the honor and the privilege of serving as the managing partner in St. Louis. I want to especially thank those that made uh, all this possible, including our 148 committee members, our 188 table hosts that reserved over 237 tables, and 385 of us who so generously financially supported this ministry. Without you, this would not happen. And with that, I want to introduce our CEO and chairman, John Schlifsky, and his wife, Kim. Come on up, John and Kim Schlifsky. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Awake? Are you awake? Good. Um, well, first of all, we're so excited today to be here with all of you. Um, we really do look forward to it. Not the 5 a.m. hard wake up, but we really do look forward to this breakfast. And I would be remiss to be in a room of 2,000 plus people and not ask you to please say a little prayer for my husband that he delivers the best ever talk for you all. I'll so. <laughs> and this morning, uh, we are blessed and so excited to have Ron Jolson and Renee Jolson with us. And Ron's going to talk to us about his new book. I'm sure it's one of many to come, An Unexpected Journey. Uh, when, when we received it last week, I brought the mail back to John's office and I opened the book up. <clears throat> and I stood there thinking I would just look through it. How many pages long is it? And I stood there reading it, and I couldn't stop. And I finally thought, come on, Kim, you've got a lot to do today. Put it down. You can read it later on in bed when you need to fall asleep. Um, but it did not put me to sleep. And I'm really excited for all of you to read it. Ron, it's awesome. And, and so thank you. Uh, so with that, have a great annual meeting. I look forward to seeing many and all of you. Good morning. I just wanted to welcome you. It's so gratifying to stand up here and see this room filled to the rafters, so to speak, with all of you. And I just want to thank you for uh, starting your annual meeting with this breakfast. It's, it means a lot to me, and it's, it's really, uh, I think, a great way to kick off just a wonderful week together. And I think what I most appreciate is that 
not only are you dedicated to Northwestern Mutual, but you're dedicated to your faith, and we can bring those things together to start the annual meeting. So have a great breakfast, everyone, and I will see you at uh, the Fiserv Forum in a little bit. Thank you. Thank you, John and Kim. That was awesome. I actually want to be the first to let you know that John and Kim Schlisky will be our speakers for this event next year. So it's going to be a, a not-to-be-missed event. Let's give it up again for John and Kim. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce Mr. Ron Jolson. Ron was the former chief investment officer of our $300 billion AAA-rated portfolio. But more impressively and more importantly than that, he is married to his awesome wife, Renee, who's in the audience this morning. Let's give it up for Renee. He has four amazing kids, seven grandkids. And as you're about to hear, he's had one heck of a faith journey. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm Northwestern Mutual welcome to Ron Jolson. Great to be here. So this Jewish man, he walks into his rabbi's office. He says, Rabbi, you are not going to believe this. My son left the house today and he came back a Christian. The rabbi says, you're not going to believe this. My son left the house today and he came back a Christian. What do we do? Let's pray. So they pray to God. And God says to both of them, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Gurley, for allowing me to change my joke to that one, because that was far superior. And if you fall asleep in any of this, a lot of it is going to be in the book, not all of it. So I hope you'll get it. I was disappointed to find out that the moment it went to the printers, I got a phone call, and I learned that The Unforgiving Journey is the name of the first Hobbit movie. So we, we had a little fact check problem, I guess, with that. So I added a subtitle from head to heart, because what you're going to hear today really uh, is a story going from the head to a heart. And it really explains why a Jewish guy like me is currently goes to church every Sunday. Uh, and it's, it's really something that I never expect could have happened, should have happened, would have happened. But it did happen, and uh, when you hear a little bit of the background, it's going to be a, a little bit even more unusual, because the typical reasons that people come to know Jesus Christ was not part of my story. I didn't come from a family that uh, had particular issues or problems. I didn't have uh, a pretty well-off family. My father actually became the chief economist at General Electric, so there was really no reason for it to happen. So we're going to talk about that uh, today. I will say this, I grew up as a, a, what I would call a cultural Jew. I didn't really believe in God, even. Uh, as, by the way, many Jews do not, particularly in the Northeast, where I grew up. Um, but it was important to me. And I do want you to understand why my Jewish heritage is important. Uh, and it probably starts uh, with my father. Uh, so my father, interestingly enough, this was taken uh, very, very soon after he left Germany. He is a Holocaust survivor, but not actually in the traditional sense. He's a Holocaust survivor, 
Uh, he didn't actually be deported into a work camp, but he went underground in Berlin during the war. And can you imagine just for a moment, his father was actually a doctor. They were pretty well off. Uh, but all of a sudden, with the coming rise to power of Adolf Hitler, uh, Jews and even professionals like his father were unable to practice medicine. And so they were working in a munitions factory. His father, his mother, and his sister had the day shift. He worked the night shift as a 19-year-old young man. And one day, his parents didn't come home, and neither did his sister. And he got a knock on the door from a woman from the Jewish community who said, you know, uh, they're deporting people now from their workplace. So you may want to think about whether you want to go to work. Now, this created an incredible problem for my father because he had had an argument with his father that if this ever were to happen, his father said, you know, get deported. You're young, you're healthy, you're strong. They'll put you to work, but you'll survive. But if you go underground, and they find you, they'll kill you. And my father never disagreed with his father, but something wasn't right. Maybe in his spirit, I don't know. But something wasn't right. It could be the fact that his aunt, who was a prolific letter writer, she had been deported and didn't get a single letter back from her. And if you read the book, you'll find out there were a few more reasons that happened, but he decided to go underground, and so he did. Now I'll fast forward a little bit, that's my mother there. Um, this is very soon after they met in this country. My father actually was deported to Switzerland, or not deported, he escaped to Switzerland. Uh, the government actually financed his PhD without a single record. All of his records have been destroyed in Germany. And uh, whatever you want to say about the Swiss, my father always had a very kind word to say about them because they basically paid for a PhD in economics uh, which he completed in uh, a year and a half, or no, sorry, in three years, uh, because it was both undergraduate and graduate. And so uh, they, he came to this country and met my mother, and you can see her here. That's, those are my parents today. Actually, my father recently passed, but that's the most recent picture I have of them. Now, this is my father's Jewish school, and uh, this was taken, uh, he was a bit younger, Every single person in that picture, my father's the one standing sort of uh, at the top. Um, his head is kind of higher on the left-hand side of the screen. Um, the young man in the front row that you see sort of looking sideways, a uh, good friend, he survived. The man who is the young man whose face is half off the picture, he survived. Everybody else was killed. And when my father went underground, both those boys also went underground. They made the same decision he did. They used to meet in park benches every week. They had no idea where each other lived because if any one of them had gotten caught, they would have been probably tortured to give the addresses of their friends. So they didn't know where they lived, but they plotted and they planned their escape. And they all escaped in different ways, uh, but they did have each other. Imagine being all alone, not a penny in your pocket. My father would just sell possessions uh, that his parents had in order to survive. As he moved around apartment to apartment in Berlin, um, that's quite, quite an amazing story. Now, this is my mother's side. Those are my mother's parents in the middle, uh, Ellie and Kurt. Now, 
My mother left in 1937 when Jews could still leave Germany. And the reason she left is because her mother, and you can see her pictured right here with my grandfather, insisted that this man, Hitler, was crazy and they got to get out. And he was a World War I decorated veteran. That was the last thing that he wanted to do. He's like, come on, this guy will blow over. He's crazy. Um, he was a very patriotic German. As I said, he was decorated in World War I. He didn't want to go. My grandmother said, either we go or I go with Karen, who's my mother, uh, and we'll leave you. <laughs> so they left, as you can imagine. And of course, she saved his life and her life and my mother's life. And I wouldn't be here if she hadn't been so insistent. At a time when most Jews were pretty much not ready to pick up and leave. So that was her story, but this is the creepiest of all. So that's my mother on the left-hand side. Um, I'm not sure who the, or the other one is, but do you see the armband on the babysitter? That is a uh, swastika. These two babysitters were Hitler Youth in their 1930, I'm gonna guess this was 1936. And there's my mother sitting there on their lap just kind of the creepiest picture when I see that, I get goosebumps. Um, and those two, I don't know, they look, I, I can't describe how they look. Anyway, so that's a, that is really their story. But the reason I, I share this with you is because you have to understand the last thing I wanted was to become a Christian. This was my heritage, it was important to me, it was important to my parents, uh, it was very important to my father, and, um, but here's what happened. Now, we were cultural Jews. We were not particularly religious. I did get bar mitzvah. I did go to Hebrew school. I learned how to speak Hebrew, but I married a Christian woman. Now, she was very gracious. She loved the Jewish traditions. She loved the Passover, uh, and we had decided that we were going to raise the kids in a way that we would honor all of those traditions, and I was thrilled about it. She said, however, we will be celebrating Christmas. And I'm like, oh my gosh, really? To me, Jesus Christ is, I mean, Jesus was his first name, Christ was his second name. You know, in, in my world, Christians were responsible for countless uh, loss of life. Now, I didn't realize at the time those were not true Christians, but to me, sort of everybody who wasn't Jewish was kind of all put in one in one bucket. So this was disturbing, but at the same time, she was so willing to compromise that I said, okay. And education is important, and being a parent that knows uh, what to say to their children when they ask questions, that's really important. Very Jewish, by the way. So I was going to learn at least something about Jesus Christ, and so she suggested reading the book of Matthew, which I did, first, the first book in the Gospels. And I was struck by what a Jewish book it was. Here was a phrase here and there, um, son of David. I saw references to the Old Testament all over the place. And it really struck me as a Jewish book. And pretty quickly I was able to learn enough so that I could explain to my child who Jesus was, but I kept going. And I started to wonder. And there I embarked on a really a three-year period of study. And I started looking at the Bible differently. Because I didn't really believe the Bible 
was the word of God. I just believed it was stories. But I did have a methodology that I was going to employ. And here's how it goes. Look, I'm a kind of a math guy. Some of you know that. Yeah, math is math. That's me. So I went into the Old Testament and I said, I'm going to start with non-Messianic prophecies. Why? Because here's the problem. When I heard Christians talk about the Bible, they always used the Bible to prove the Bible. That is circular reasoning. That didn't make sense to me. That's like poor thinking. So I started with non-Messianic prophecies. There were over 2,000 in the Old Testament. And I said, I'm actually going to look historically at what happened to these towns and cities that were all within 50 miles of Jerusalem because there was no question about a lot of the dating of the Bible. And I'd looked into that, by the way. But what happened to those cities? And I wasn't going to use the Bible to tell me what happened. I was going to use historical research, which I did. And if you get the book, you'll see some of that. Because every single one of those cities, you could actually look into and find out what happened. And you didn't have to just rely on biblical stories for most of them. And so I started, I'll just give you a couple of examples real quick. There's more in the book. Uh, for example, the city of Tyre. Tyre was a, a wealthy city back then. And if you look in scripture, it basically said uh, that it would be destroy destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that the rocks would be laid waste, that the rocks would be thrown with debris into the water, that the, the city would be flattened and would be used for the spreading of fishermen's nets. I'm like, okay, that's specific. Okay? So... A couple years later, Nebuchadnezzar takes over Tyre. And I'm like, all right, that's too close in time. That's really not enough to convince me because the timing isn't that precise. But hundreds of years later, Alexander the Great, the Great comes. And basically what happened was when, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Tyre, they all went by boat to an island and they stayed in the island of Tyre uh, where they lived for a couple hundred years. But when Alexander the Great, the Great came, he was not a seafaring guy, he was a land conqueror. He took the rocks of Tyre, he threw them into the water, built a causeway, crossed the causeway, destroyed the island city of Tyre, and flattened the city bare till it was just rocks. Here's a picture of Tyre today, and you can see fishermen today use it to spread their nets. Today, wild. Or you could take the city of Petra, was another one that I looked at. That was the capital city of Edom. Now there, the prophecy was that it wouldn't be destroyed, but that it would be conquered, that it would be a wasteland, that nobody would live there except for maybe wild animals. And sure enough, if you've ever been to Israel, if you ever go to Petra, this is what it looks like. Anybody see the Indiana Jones movie? You probably thought that was a Hollywood set. It's actually not, it was filmed in Petra. Um, and sure enough, it wasn't destroyed, but it is abandoned, and you can see scorpions and wild animals running all over the place if you go there. Again, prophecy, perfect. So I went through this, started doing some crazy probability calculations, and I decided, guess what, the Old Testament is right, and now I was content, I believed, I started believing in God, and I'll show you a few more reasons why that happened, and I really started to look at now messianic prophecies because I could rely on the Old Testament. I wasn't looking at the New Testament now, focusing on the Old Testament. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. 
The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a tiny town. By the way, Beit Lechem is actually Hebrew. It means house of bread. We'll get to that. Yeah, I knew some of the Hebrew names that I was reading too. That born of a virgin, a Nazarene, a Galilean, all of that seemed to be contradictory. And literally the crucifixion itself was described in Psalm 22. It was described in Isaiah 53. By the way, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said it in Aramaic. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama zabachtani. Why was that important? That was important because Jews in the first century learned the Psalms when the rabbi said the first to the first sentence. So when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama zabachtani, every Jewish person, and there were a lot of them there because they were celebrating the Passover, they would say in their heads the rest of Psalm 22. I'm not going to read it for you, but go home and read Psalm 22 because the people that were looking at him on the cross actually started to see in their minds from Psalm 22 what was going on in front of them. It was incredible. It describes that his hands and his feet would be pierced in the Old Testament, in Psalm 22. And I'm learning this stuff. And by the way, it says he was sold for 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament says his bones would not be broken. All of these things were right in front of my face. By the way, I didn't stop there. I actually looked at, at science and archaeology. Everybody said, well, the Bible's not a science textbook. Okay, but did any of it contradict the science that I knew? And you can read in the Old Testament that the earth was round. You can read in the Old Testament that it was suspended in midair, mid-space. That wasn't discovered until centuries later, but it is in Scripture. Okay, you're going to laugh. You know about Jews being kosher, they won't eat pork, but did you know that pigs are one of the few animals that literally, to get cool, they sleep in their excrement, and they didn't know it at the time, but that is one of the most unhealthy animals you could possibly eat because of that. But it's in Scripture. The Jewish people won't, won't eat pork. And there's a lot of rituals that we have since learned have incredible medical properties. Even dare I say this on the stage, circumcision required to happen on the eighth day. It's on the eighth day that clotting uh, is, is best able to be done by a baby due to uh, the production of prothrombin. On the eighth day is the best time to be circumcised for a small baby and also the lowest pain point as well. That was discovered in the 1950s. So I started looking into a lot of these things Archaeology is crazy, the accuracy of the Bible. And to this day, if you, if you meet an archaeologist in Israel, they will have, I promise you, in their back pocket a Bible because that is what they use to determine what it is that they're looking at. They are so reliant uh, on it. And now finally we get to the Fiesta de Resistance, Passover. So Passover, very, very important Jewish holiday. I celebrate it every year. I still do to this day. But because I'd started doing all of this research, I was really beginning to wonder what I was looking at. For example, in the Passover today, you will see on every Seder table, this is called a matzah and it has three compartments in it, and there are three matzahs put in it. Everyone knows what matzah is. Matzah is unleavened bread. It commemorates the Jewish people when they were leaving Egypt. They had to leave so quickly there wasn't time to put 
to bake the bread. And so they left with matzah. What does matzah look like? Looks like this. I didn't know what the breakfast was going to be, so I brought my own. <laughs> okay, now why is this important? Well, it's the middle matzah of this th compartment that's perfect representation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was always told it was representing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but honestly, that made no sense to anybody. But the middle piece of matzah at the Seder, even today, and certainly in the first century, is broken, it's wrapped, it's actually hidden, and usually the children hide the, it's called the afikomen, which is a Greek word, that makes no sense. It's a Greek word, that means that which is to come, by the way, it's what the Greek word means. I'm not kidding. This piece of matzah is literally wrapped, it is hidden, and as I said, the children usually do it and they ransom it because you need this in order to finish your Passover Seder. I know I have some Jewish friends that they're all nodding their heads because you have to have this piece of matzah or you cannot finish the Seder. And so usually what you do is you give the kids some chocolate money or something like that. So there's a ransom for this piece of bread. Do you guys see where I'm going? This is a representation of Jesus Christ because in the Bible, Leaven, this is unleavened bread, is actually a symbol for sin. So this is a sinless piece of bread. Where did I say Jesus was born? Bethlehem. That's Hebrew for house of bread, Beit Lechem. That's where he was born. He called himself the bread of life. A lot. And he was referred that way. In fact, John the Baptist also called him the Passover lamb. So that was all part of this. Remember the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and the lintel to save the Jewish people from the angel of death during the whole exodus and all of that. Well, Jesus Christ shed his blood in order to save all of us. So that's why John the Baptist referred to him as the Passover man, lamb. But in the Old Testament, it literally says that the Messiah will be bruised for our iniquities. Do you see the bruise marks on here? Pierced for our transgressions, there are little holes, and by his stripes we are healed. You can see how the stripes. Now, by the way, when I first learned that, I actually looked into what matzah, as it was made in the first century and earlier, and it did look the same. It still had the bruise marks, it had the holes, and it actually had the lined up in stripes. That was all Old Testament, perfect description of Jesus Christ. So by the time I got through the Passover, I'm like, wow, this is the real thing. And I could not ignore it, but there's more. Let's go to this slide. This is the word of God. This literally means in Hebrew, Jehovah. By the way, we would never say this word. When I read this word in Hebrew, I would always say Adonai, which means Lord, because we don't like to pronounce the name of God because nobody actually knows exactly how it was pronounced. Uh, this word actually has no vowels in it. Okay, But it's typically Yahweh or Jehovah in the way we talk about it today. Now, in Hebrew, every single letter has a pictorial representation of it. Okay, And you can learn a lot about Hebrew words when you look at the pictures behind them. So I thought, well, what are the pictures behind this word, which is literally Jehovah, which is literally the Lord God? And here's what the pictures mean. The hay means, and you read from right to left, so uh, it's, it gets a little confusing, but, but the hay, the Hebrew letter hay, means behold, so that doesn't really have a picture. It's sort of like this 
Aha, the hands are going up like that. Uh, the next is nail, then behold, and then hand. Does anybody see that in the name of God, you can actually see the crucifixion? In literally the picture name of God itself. Here's another interesting one I looked at. Bereshit. That is actually the first word of the Bible. That's in the beginning. Bereshit. Beit, Resh, Olive, Shin, Yud, Tov. Now, Beit and Resh together, those two form the word Bar. That means son. Ever hear of Bar Jonah, Barabbas, when Barabbas was released, son of the father, Barabbas. Jesus probably thought that was ironic that they let that guy go when he was truly the son of the father. But anyway, Bar means son. Aleph is God's letter. That's the next letter, the third letter. Remember, I'm reading from right to left. So the third letter, Aleph, that's God's word. So you have son of God. Shin, that's the one that looks like a W. Those are actually representation of teeth, and it means to destroy. Then you have the Yid again, which is the hand, and the Tav is actually a cross. So the word Bereshit, the first word of the Bible, can also be read, Son of God destroyed with his hands on a cross. I'm not kidding. The Bible says that, the, that God knows the end from the beginning. It's the first word. It's got the end in it. So as a Jewish thinking person doing all of the research and doing all of it, I could not do anything but come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And the question is, what was I going to do about it? And here's where we get into the problem, because I had all the head knowledge. This is why the subtitle of the book is Head to Heart. I had all the head knowledge, but I didn't have the heart knowledge. I didn't really know what it meant for me personally. Now, I had gone to a concert at a church, a local church. I signed out one of those cards, put my address on there, and lo and behold, two gentlemen from this church that I went to knocked on the door. This was a couple weeks after I had done a lot of this, finished my research. And uh, they said they handed me a very nice bunt cake that they had made or somebody had made. And they said, Ron, we'd just like to talk to you. Thank you for coming to our church. And then the guy says, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain if you were to die tonight that you would be in heaven with God? Like, wow. Well, no, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, I, I guess I think that I'm a pretty good person, so I'm hopeful. So I didn't really totally get all of it. I got the head knowledge, but I didn't really know what it meant for me personally. And this guy says, his name was Ray, I'll never forget him. And Ray says, well, you know, the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. That's it, uh, 1 John 6:47. I didn't know that at the time, but I found out later. And you may know it. And he said, so Ron, I have really good news for you. The good news is that heaven, a relationship with God, is actually a free gift. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The gift being eternal life, but also relationship with God. It also says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, Ron, I gave you this bunt cake. How come you didn't reach into your pocket and give me a dollar to offset the cost of the ingredients? I looked at Ray like he was nuts. I said, you just gave me a gift. It wouldn't be a gift. He goes, exactly. You just said you were, felt you were kind of a good person. Well, if this is a gift of God, your works, those things that you said that you've been doing, 
That's like a dollar for the gift. It doesn't make sense. Do you understand that? I said, well, kind of. He said, well, let me give you the bad news. <laughs> the bad news is, of course, that we're all sinners. I'm like, okay, now this is Christianese to me. What do you mean by that? And he said, okay. He said, let's define sin. You have sins of commission. Ron, have you ever lied? Yeah. What do we call people who lie? Liars. Have you ever stole anything? I'm like, no, well, okay, maybe once. I said, what do we call people who steal? Thieves. Okay, so you're a lying thief, he says to me. I'm like, you can take your bunt cake back. You're a lying thief. He said, and just to make it a little bit more real, you know, Jesus Christ said a hateful thought is tantamount to committing murder, and a lustful thought is tantamount, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever had a lustful thought? Yes, I have. He said, the Bible says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So God's standard is perfection, and you, my friend, he said, have failed. He said, so have I. So have all of us in this room. And that's why it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know two things about God, he said. We know that he is love. The Bible even said God is love. But it also says he's perfectly just. And this creates a dilemma, not for God, but for us. Because let's face it, if God is love, then everybody in this room is going to heaven, and so is Hitler, and so is Mussolini. But if God is perfectly just, none of us make it. Because all of us fall short. I said, that's a problem. He goes, yes, but God solved this problem in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Ron, he said, who is Jesus Christ? I said, well, he's the son of God. And Ray goes, that's right. I'm a son of God, too. Is he like me? I said, no, Ray, he's perfect. I said, that's right. He said, but he's much more than that. In the beginning of the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the first part of it says, and the word was God. And in John 1.14, it says the word became flesh. So who is that, Ron? I said, that's Jesus. He said, that's right. Jesus is literally God. A theologian once said he was so much God, it was though he were not man at all. He was so much man, it was as though he were not God at all. He was man's perfect God and God's perfect man. And what did he do? He died on the cross and he rose from the dead to pay the penalty for our sin and purchase for us a place in heaven which he offered as a free gift. Now, Ray stood up at that point and he had a Bible and, he, and I'm going to just do what he did with me. So this hand represents Ron Jolson and I have on it this book. And I just want to say that let's say this book represents every sin I've ever committed. It would probably be a much bigger book. Now, I can change my ways. I can even turn over a new leaf, but I cannot have a relationship with a holy God when I have all of this sitting on top of my hand. Now, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead and paid the penalty for that sin. So all we are like sheep that have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And now look, I can have that relationship. He doesn't even see it. Those sins are as far as the east is from the west because they've been fully, fully paid for. That is a freeing concept. That's how you may know you have eternal life because that transaction happened. And in fact, on the cross, one of the things Jesus said was the word tetelestai. That's a Greek word. It means paid in full. It's literally been found. I looked this up. 
It's literally been found on the bottom of bills of lading. When a bill has been paid, they used to stamp it paid in full to Telestai. And Jesus was saying on the cross that those sins were paid in full. Now, here's what you, a lot of people have heard that. Here's what you haven't heard. The Aramaic was probably what he actually said because that was his language of the day. To tell us that was the Greek translation. And the Aramaic word is kalel. You know what kalel means? It means the same thing, paid in full. But there's a homonym in Aramaic, which is a, an offshoot of Hebrew. A homonym of Aramaic, and kalel also means bride. Why is that important? Well, Christians, all of you are considered the bride of Christ. And Jesus, in one word, was not only saying that your sin debt was paid in full, he was describing the relationship that he wants to have with you, like a husband and a bride. That's how close God wants to be with you. Kalel. I'm guessing nobody's heard that. <laughs> you can't know that unless you look into that. Kalel. That's so beautiful to me. So it was not only transactional, it was relational. At the same time, with one word on the cross. Incredible. Well, Ray, how do I get this gift? <laughs> I said to him, he said, good question, Ron. So how do we get the gift of eternal life, that relationship, that kalel? How does that happen? He said, Ron, it's faith. F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust him. I'm like, wow, I can remember that. And he said, the reason I use that is because there's different kinds of faith. You can have intellectual assent. You can have faith that Jesus was real. Well, the devil believes that. The Bible says you believe in one God, good, so do the demons, and they tremble. That wasn't enough. That's not saving faith. Okay, you can have faith in God for temporal things, temporal faith, like I'm going to pray to God for travel, safe travel mercies when I go home. But saving faith is when you trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So I have two chairs here. This chair represents Ron Jolson. My whole life I sat on this chair, pretty comfortable that the good things I did outweighed the bad even though I still did those bad things. But now this chair over here represents Jesus Christ. Now I have faith that if I were to sit in this chair, it would hold me up, but it's not. Why isn't it holding me up? Because I'm not sitting in it. So when we become Christians, when we accept in faith that it's not what the works that we do, but what he did on the cross, we transfer our trust from the, in my case, the Ron Jolson chair to the chair of Jesus Christ, and he's holding me up. And this transfer of trust is the key to the entire thing. And by the way, it also means that you're making Jesus the Lord of your life, not yourself. And so when you drive home today and you see Jesus at the side of the road hitchhiking, are you going to pick him up? Yeah, you are going to pick him up. But are you going to let him into the driver's seat? Because <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. That's lordship. It's not just I'm going to get eternal life. It's that you're going to make him the Lord of your life. And that's what we have to do, and that is truly saving faith. And so Ray showed me that, and I hope I'm demonstrating that to you. Now, what I'd like to do, and I've got to get us out in time, where John said, that's it. Well, I'm kind of retired, so it's okay. <laughs> now, what I'd like to do is I want to pray. Now, a lot of you in this audience are Christians, and maybe you may want to pray to uh, commit recommit yourself to Christ. That would be great. Some of you are not, and you may want to pray this for the first time. So I'm going to say a prayer, and you repeat it after me. You can be very soft if you want, or you can pray it out loud. Um, and it really is, the reason I say it is the Bible says that if we confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we believe in our hearts 
that he rose from the dead, that we are saved. And so I want to do that profession with you. Uh, but do keep in mind, it means a couple things. It is not only that transfer of trust, there's also the concept of repentance that's part of that as well. Repentance means, it's like a military term. If you ever see a, a military band doing about face, that's actually repentance. And through our strength, it is difficult to say goodbye to our sins, but I promise you, when you bring Christ into your life, the Holy Spirit will enable you, will empower you to be able to leave those sins. Some people, it's all at once. Most of us, it's kind of one at a time. As he brings it forth, I'm not going to do that anymore. So part of it is also repentance. So why don't we um, bow our heads. I'm going to lead us in prayer right now. And if you could just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot save myself. I know that you're a merciful God. You love me but you are also a just God. So I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, to pay the penalty for my sin and purchase for me a place in heaven, which you offer as a free gift. I receive that gift through faith by trusting Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, and I let you now into my heart and into my life, in Jesus' name. And with that, I just want to thank you all for listening. Listeners of Christian Fellowship Community Presentations and any recordings acknowledge that these productions are exclusively owned by CFC and listeners agree to only use for their listening and not to make any use for any commercial reason. Yeah.